Hi, this is Lily DeHoyes Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me this week, week two of 2023. Still can't believe it. You know how you make that mistake for a few months before you get the date right or the, or the year part. Today, we're talking about the second chapters of Matthew and Luke that talk about those who came to worship the child, the, the Christ child, to whom the birth was announced or disclosed. And I loved this. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that President Oaks in the First Presidency Christmas devotional of this past December 2022 talked about how Christ came to three groups of people, the humble, the holy, and the wise. I thought that was really beautiful. The humble, the holy, and the wise. So let's talk about that. The humble, of course, refers to the shepherds to whom the angel appeared. They were out watching their fields by night, their flocks by night. And the angel comes and says, fear not. For behold, you know, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be unto all people. And they get this wonderful announcement and then hear the angel chorus singing in praise of this moment, of this prophesied event, long prophesied event, that Christ himself would come the Son of God would be born to a humble human woman, Mary, and be our Redeemer and the Redeemer of all mankind. So what do they shepherds do? This is chapter 2 in Luke, where it says in verse 15 that the shepherds look at each other and say, let us now go and see this thing which has come to pass. It says in the next verse, they came with haste. So they go into Bethlehem and they find the place where the Christ child is with Mary and the stepfather Joseph, and they worship him. And then in verse 17, it says that they made these things known abroad. So they share this news, these humble shepherds. And again, you know, it's worth noting that God does not share this kind of information with just anybody. So we can make some probable assumptions here that the shepherds were righteous men that they studied the law and the prophets, and that they were obedient. And so here, the most humble of, of individuals awake by night because they're, they're doing their job, watching the flocks, and the angel comes and announces this amazing news to these men who understood what the angel was talking about. And they wouldn't have known at all about this had they not been righteous men who were aware of the prophesied coming of Christ. So we'll talk a little bit more about humility a little later, but let's talk about the second group, the holy. The examples given here are Simeon and Anna. Now, Simeon, in chapter 2, verse 25, he's described as a just and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel, and that's a phrase that describes Jesus Christ, the consolation of Israel. You know, Christ is the second comforter. He will comfort and console all of us in the end if we come unto him. And it says that specifically the Holy Ghost was upon him. And we'll talk about that too in a moment, about how that is completely tied in with holiness. It's the access to the companionship of the Holy Ghost. But let's go on. In verse 27, it says that he came by the Spirit into the temple. So he wasn't assigned to work there or perform ordinances there, but Simeon is a holy man, just and devout, and he's waiting for the coming of Christ as prophesied by all the prophets of the Old Testament. 
And he has the gift of the Holy Ghost. So the Spirit instructs him to go into the temple on the day that Mary and Joseph come, as dictated in the law of Moses, to come and make an offering in the temple in remembrance of their firstborn son. And as it tells us in the record, they were poor, so their offering was allowed to be just two turtle doves that were not very expensive for them to come and, and make an offering. So as the Spirit instructs Simeon, apparently he doesn't work in the temple, but he is prompted by the Spirit to come to the temple on that day. And when he sees Mary and Joseph there to offer the two turtle doves, he recognizes by the Spirit that this is the promised Messiah. And he goes to Mary and Joseph, and it says that he took the infant in his arms and, and praised God because he knew that this was Jesus Christ. And after he has blessed God, he says in verse 29, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. In other words, I can now die. As the Spirit had told him that he would not die until he had seen this promised Messiah come as a child. And now this has been fulfilled. And he says, now you can take me, Lord, because this has been fulfilled. In verse 34, mine eyes have seen my salvation. I've mentioned this before, but I, I think it's beautiful and interesting how forward the faith was of people who who believed in Christ prior to his accomplishing the great atoning sacrifice and the victory over the grave through resurrection. And these people believed that these things would come to pass before the, they came to pass. We have not been asked to have that kind of faith in this particular event, although God does expect us to have faith in things to come like the victory, the final victory of Christ over Satan, the coming of the Lord the second time in glory. Anyway, there are many things that we are asked to believe in a forward kind of aspect, but we don't have to believe that way about Jesus Christ. We can believe in something that has already happened and still have faith, but in something that has already come to pass. Simeon, Anna, you know, the shepherds, and all the prophets of the Old Testament had that forward faith concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ that he would come, that he would perform this atoning sacrifice and victory over the grave that allowed them to put their faith in something that had not even happened yet. So anyway, I'm always touched by that kind of forward faith. Simeon, who just sees the child, just sees this child who is not very many days old, and he knows that this is the promised Messiah, and he will do what has been prophesied from the beginning of time. And he states that so beautifully, mine eyes have seen my salvation, knowing that his salvation is in Jesus Christ, just as our salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the story of Anna is told, starting with 36 of Luke 2, and in verse 37 as well, that Anna is a prophetess, so a holy woman of a great age. And if we do a little math here, of course we make a few suppositions, but it says that she was married seven years and then widowed four score and four years, which is 84 years, a score being 20 years, right? So she was married seven years, widowed 84 years. That's 91 years. Now, at what age was she married? And of course, we don't know exactly, but it was not uncommon in that day for Jewish women, very young women, to be married, typically around age, ages 12 to 14-ish. You know, again, we don't know exactly but at very young ages, young Jewish women were married. So let's say she was even as young as 12, and then we add those additional 91 years. So she would have been at least 103 years or more. So I guess it's fair to say she was of a great age. 
Anna has lived a long time, mostly as a widow. And in verse 37, it tells us that she departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So even at this advanced age, she is now just remaining there in the temple, worshiping God. And again, in verse 38, she sees Mary Joseph, and she comes at that instant to see Mary Joseph there to give that offering, and she gives thanks unto the Lord, and then speaks of the Lord to all them that look for redemption in Jerusalem. So she also, like the shepherds, shares that news and says, you know, the Lord has come. The Lord, as promised, has been born to the Jews, that he is of the lineage of David, and here he is. He has come to earth as the Son of God the Father and the Son of Mary. And now he is here to fulfill all the things that have been prophesied of him and all those beautiful messianic prophecies for all the ages of the Old Testament. So some beautiful examples there of two holy people, Simeon and Anna, both guided by the Spirit to recognize the Christ child, even in his early infancy. The third group that President Oaks mentions are the wise. And these are depicted by the Magi. Or we call them the, the wise men, right? Now, if you got a chance to listen to my guest visit on the podcast Follow Him concerning the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament a few months ago, I talked about one interesting detail about Daniel that he was almost certainly the reason that the wise men came to worship the Christ child. In other words, Daniel in Babylon was appointed chief of the Magi and developed you know, an incredible reputation as being this wise man. And as I said, chief of the Magi, one of the reasons being that all the magicians were slated to be destroyed when they couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. He didn't remember the dream of the statue, remember? But he was troubled by it. So he goes to the, all his you know, magicians and wise men of the court and says, tell me what the dream was and then tell me what it means. And they don't have a clue. So they're all going to be put to death when Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, give me, give me the time to pray about it because God can reveal all secrets. So then Daniel does pray and is given that same vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in a dream of the statue. And he reveals that dream to Nebuchadnezzar, who then recognizes it as his dream. And then Daniel gives the interpretation thereof that we talked about at some length when we talked about Daniel. So Daniel, again, acquires this great stature as the chief of the Magi in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And that continues through the reign of four other kings. And he is valued as this tremendous wise man and consulted by these different rulers, even though there's even a change of, of the countries involved. So it goes from you know the Babylonians to the Persians and the Medes and so on. But Daniel is still regarded in this position of high status because of his wisdom and goodness. And, you know, there are plots against him, as we know, and so on, but he survives all of those and maintains this position as counselor to, to these various kings. So it makes sense that he would have had this great reputation among the other wise men. He was responsible for their lives being spared. And he gets very specific prophecy in the last six chapters of Daniel. He actually petitions the Lord for understanding of even the timetable of when the Christ child shall be born and of his death and resurrection and, and then even latter-day events, including the second coming. 
And those things are revealed to him by the angel Gabriel. So um, anyway, this is kind of a review of our study of the prophet Daniel. But if you need that refresher, go back and listen to that follow him episode on Daniel. And I talk about it in a little more detail then. But what I mentioned also in that podcast was that it is almost certainly because of Daniel's position in that court as chief of the Magi that that tradition must have come through about 600 years following Daniel that the Magi passed on this information that a king would be born to the Jews. A heavenly king would come and that he should be worshipped and to him should be brought gifts of great value to acknowledge his kingship, his, his coming as, as the child of God and, and to acknowledge his kingship and they came to worship him. So this is not just in our tradition, but there are many scholars that believe that the Magi were Persians from Babylonian region and that Daniel's prophecies had become known throughout that Near East area. Even apparently in historical documents, we see that the Romans also were aware of Daniel's prophecies of a coming king of Israel. So, as we said, the Magi would almost certainly have studied the writings of Daniel and probably other Jewish writings that Daniel would have referenced, such as Isaiah and some of those messianic prophecies. So, going on, this would show that you know, even after all these centuries, about six centuries, the Magi were watching for a sign that would show that the Jewish king had arrived in Judea and that that would happen near the end of the first century BC. And that's exactly when it happened. So they saw the star in the east. Now it would have taken them time and uh, to put together a great caravan and to you know collect their gifts and their supplies and so on and to travel to worship the child. So we don't know exactly when that happened, but you know our nativity sets often depict the shepherds and the magi there at the stable worshiping the Christ child. Nevertheless, in other depictions that are more accurate, we see that the Magi came at least a year or two later. And this explains why Herod, who was so threatened by the idea of a king of the Jews born in that area that he commanded the slaughter of the innocents, which is in a horrendous chapter and incredible culpability then lies upon Herod for killing all these babies that were either two years or younger. So again, that would indicate that it took a year or two for the Magi to come and find the young child, and that's the phrase that's used. And this is recorded only in the book of Matthew. So we don't have a record of the coming of the Magi in any other book, but in Matthew chapter 2, we have this story of how they first come to Herod and say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And Herod is appalled at this, but hides that and says, oh, well, you know, let's consult the scholars and the scriptorians, and they find that he is to be born in Bethlehem, as prophesied by Micah. So the Magi go to Bethlehem. Now, uh, Herod tells them, come back when you're done visiting this child and tell me where he is so that I can go worship him too, which is, of course, not his intent. He wants to kill him. He sees this as a threat to his power and his governance in the area. So Herod, you remember, was not really a Jew, but he was an Edomaean. Again, this is another word that describes some of the descendants of Esau or Edom. So not really of the house of David. And, and so he's afraid that his governance there would be threatened by the birth of a child that was prophesied to be king of the Jews. So 
He wants to slay him while the wise men are told by an angel not to go back to Herod, but to depart another way back into their own land after bringing these precious gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And as we know, an angel comes to Joseph also and warns him to take the young child and his mother and to flee into Egypt so that they can be saved from the slaughter of the innocents. If you've gone to very many art museums throughout the world, we often see this. This is a big topic that was covered by many artists who depict this slaughter of the innocents. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible act that is commanded and then carried out through Herod. And so many young children destroyed because of the, the fear that comes to Herod and his desire to completely extinguish any challenge to his power. As I said, the, the gifts undoubtedly helped to support the family when they were in Egypt. Because Joseph is not, you know, in his own place where he has makes a regular living, I suppose. At any rate, the angel tells him that it's safe to come back. And there's a mention in the Come Follow Me curriculum that specifically mentions that parents are entitled to revelation concerning their children and the protections of their family. I think that's a really good point. I know personally that I was so grateful that God is generous in revelation to those who ask. I was not really prepared to be the mother of eight children. I had two siblings. My husband had one. Actually, all sisters. I had two sisters. My husband had one sister. And, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing. But I had a real testimony of being a full-time mother. So grateful for that opportunity in my life. I learned so much about myself and about God and about my children and about the plan of salvation and all the doctrines of the kingdom, or at least many of the doctrines of the kingdom, through going to the Lord and asking him to help me and instruct me and teach me about how to be a parent. Not saying I was perfect, but I know that the Lord enlightened me and helped me. And really, I was so appreciative of, of how generous the Lord is and how much he loves our children and loves us, of course. So he gives us this stewardship for which we are ill-prepared, no matter how much we have studied. This is definitely on-the-job training in so many aspects. But um, I remember praying about, you know, specific children or specific situations for which I needed additional guidance or inspiration, and then having thoughts or ideas or, you know, coming up with a resource or something that gave me information that would help me move forward. And I could see that what a blessing that was for me and for my family. So anyway, I liked that point in the lesson that we are entitled to revelation and we should ask, knock, and seek that guidance from the Lord concerning our children. He loves them even more than we do. Let us trust that and go to him. At any rate, Joseph is instructed to bring Mary and the child back, and he settles in Nazareth and becomes a carpenter there, and thus, again, the fulfillment of a prophecy that Christ would come out of Nazareth. So, we've talked about the humble, the holy, and the wise. Let's talk a little bit more about that. I'm going to save the humble part for last. So let's talk first about how we can be holy, because if these are the three groups to whom Christ came in his first appearance on the planet, to come in obscurity as a young child in a poor family, and then to become the Savior of the world, when he comes again in his glory, it makes sense that he's going to come to those who are humble, holy, and wise. And of course, one of his early appearances will be in the New Jerusalem, in that Zion community. And that Zion community must be made up of 
of those who are humble, holy, and wise. We've been talking all along about preparing for the second coming of Christ by becoming a Zion people, choosing the path that allows us to become humble, holy, and wise. So I really love that combination of of characteristics that President Oaks invited us to consider, and I really believe it has perfect application to our preparations for the second coming of Christ. So let's talk about holiness. There are a lot of things that can be said about being holy, but I'm going to just hit one of those aspects, which has to do with our becoming sanctified and being made clean through the baptism of fire by the power of the Holy Ghost. So to become truly holy, I would say we could equate that with sanctification. And again, we've, we've mentioned that on and off during the podcast. Let me read some quotes about sanctification from some of our prophets, starting with Joseph Smith. The nearer man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views and the greater his enjoyments till he has overcome the evils of his life and lost every desire for sin. Now that sounds like holiness, doesn't it? That the nearer we approach perfection, which we know is a gift and an endowment that comes in the resurrection, but here we are encouraged to pursue the path toward perfection, towards purity. And please dismiss anything you hear about this culture of purity being somehow oppressive or anti-woman or connected with rape culture. That's foolishness. Those are philosophies of men mingled with scripture, and they are foolish ideas. They are sophistry. Get thee behind me. Cast those ideas out and understand the great blessing that God offers to us, the potential to become pure as he is pure to be perfected in this process by the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost. Let me read this statement by Joseph Smith again. The nearer man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views, the greater his enjoyments, till he has overcome the evils of his life and lost every desire for sin. That's the path we should be on. Another statement by Joseph Smith. There are two comforters spoken of. One is the Holy Ghost, the same as given on the day of Pentecost, and that all saints receive after faith, repentance, and baptism. The first comforter, or Holy Ghost, has no other effect than pure intelligence. Because he is a revelator, right? The Holy Ghost is a revelator. He has many roles, but he reveals and testifies of truth, as well as purifying and sanctifying us as we qualify. Going on with this Joseph Smith quote, this first comforter, oh, sorry, I already read that. Going on, it is more powerful in expanding the mind, enlightening the understanding, and storing the intellect with present knowledge of a man who is of the literal seed of Abraham than one that is a Gentile. While the effect of the Holy Ghost upon a Gentile is to purge out the old blood and make him actually of the seed of Abraham. That's kind of a fascinating detail, isn't it? That it is the power of the Holy Ghost that actually changes the body in a literal sense to make us the seed of Abraham if we are not naturally descended from Abraham. So, another little detail, not super important because the the whole point is that all of us can become purified if we accept that, that baptism of fire by the Holy Ghost by qualifying through our obedience to the commandments of the gospel. Going on, Brigham Young. I will put my own definition to the term sanctification and say it consists in overcoming every sin and bringing all into subjection to the law of Christ. God has placed in us a pure spirit when this reigns predominant without let or hindrance and triumphs over the flesh and rules and governs and controls as the Lord controls the heavens and the earth. 
This I call the blessing of sanctification. So here's Brigham Young's definition. Let's just kind of review it. It consists in overcoming every sin and bringing all, that means all of ourselves, into subjection to the law of Christ so that we completely conform in obedience to the law of Christ. And then God has placed in us a pure spirit. And this can triumph over the flesh or over the natural man and rules and governs us and controls as the Lord controls the heavens and the earth. That's a pretty powerful definition. Uh, Another quote by Brigham Young, when through the gospel, the spirit in man has so subdued the flesh that he can live without willful transgression, the spirit of God unites with his spirit. They become congenial companions and the mind and will of the creator is thus transmitted to the creature. Another great statement here. When the the spirit in man has so subdued the flesh, again, overcoming the natural man so that we are not governed by desires, passions, appetites, but that we are governed by our desire to serve God, to conform to the commandments of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to become like his son, to submit to that process of, of, again, God reigning supreme and us acknowledging our need to be saved through obedience through faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, and that we are willing to pursue that doctrine of Christ in order to qualify for salvation and exaltation if we continue on that path. So we give up willful transgression. And that's a really important phrase. You know, I've talked before about how we have to define sin correctly. Sin is not imperfection. It's not being human. It's not failing to be omniscient. It's rebellion. And that's what Brigham Young is referring to here, that we have overcome rebellion or willful transgression. We don't have a desire to push against or push away from God or his commandments, but we desire to embrace all of that. And we work to do that in a diligent, even in our human imperfect ways, but we are consistently on that path so that we have truly given our will to God, as we talked about last week. And then the Spirit of God unites with His Spirit. So our spirits are united with the Spirit of God and become, this is a nice phrase, congenial companions. In other words, we can withstand the presence of the Spirit and the glory of the Spirit because we are conformed to it. We are congenial companions. I love that phrase. And the mind and will of the Creator is thus transmitted to us, the creature. We truly become more and more like Him. David O. McKay made some interesting statements as well. No man can sincerely resolve to apply in his daily life the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth without sensing a change in his nature. The phrase born again has a deeper significance than what many people attach to it. That's really important because I think a lot of times important doctrines are discussed and we don't really understand what they are referring to. The idea of being born again is not just converted, it is born of water and of the Spirit. So the baptism of water and then the baptism of fire through the Holy Ghost. That is being born again. Remember that Nicodemus comes to Christ and asks him, how does this happen? And he says, a man must be born of water and of the Spirit. And Nicodemus doesn't understand and says, how is that possible? Can a man go back and enter into his mother's womb again and be born again? And he says, no, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit, of the Holy Ghost, in order to become born again. So that is a phrase that is commensurate with sanctification. To be born of the Spirit means to be sanctified, because that is the time when the Holy Ghost 
completely changes our bodies, if necessary, into the literal seed of Abraham. If we're already of the seed of Abraham, it purifies us and helps us to become more like Christ and more fit for his presence. David O. McKay continues, this changed feeling may be indescribable, but it is real. Another statement by David O. McKay, happy the person who has truly sensed the uplifting, transforming power that comes from this nearness to the Savior, this kinship to the living Christ. I am thankful that I know that Christ is my Redeemer. And again, the Holy Ghost, one of its great roles for us is to witness of the truthfulness of Jesus Christ, of his reality. So this is why sometimes we hear perhaps our apostles or certainly in scripture, people say that they know more surely than had they seen him that Jesus is the Christ. Because the knowledge that comes through the Holy Ghost, through the revelatory and lightning power of the Holy Ghost that sanctifies us, teaches us beyond the ability of our senses to understand that Christ is in fact the Son of God and our Redeemer. Important, important ideas there concerning the Holy Ghost. Let's read something from President Spencer W. Kimball. This is the simple, total answer to the weightiest of all questions. To gain eternal life, there must be a rebirth, a transformation. So again, we are talking about becoming holy, and the path towards holiness is through the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost through being on the path to sanctification. Now, let me be clear here. The scriptures are really very clear that God in his mercy and generosity does not require that we complete the path in this life. I mean, we start from different places. Some of us are born in the church. Some of us come to the church later in our lives. Or maybe we don't understand. Even if we're born in the church, we don't really come to understand the gospel until later. That doesn't matter to God. God is not limited by time. He wants us to choose the path toward him the path towards sanctification. So where we are on the path is not the big issue. The issue is, have we chosen it? And are we diligent in that choice so that we are pursuing holiness? We are pursuing sanctification. And then if we don't complete that path in this life before we die and go into the spirit world, we can complete that path there. Again, remember in the teachings of Amulek and Alma as they taught in the Book of Mormon, that the same spirit that it possesses us here will possess us there in the spirit world. So if we are in that path toward sanctification, that the desires of our heart are clearly set upon being born again, born of the spirit, and changed in that sanctifying, purifying way by the Holy Ghost, then we can complete that path. But if here we are willfully rebellious, if we are willfully unrighteous, then that's the spirit that is going to continue with us in the spirit world. We aren't going to go from rebellion to righteousness or from sin to obedience once we die. So we need to be on the path toward the things that we desire, and then God will make sure that we have an opportunity to complete that path. It's a really very generous plan. Ezra Taft Benson said this, human nature can be changed here and now. And actually, he's quoting President McKinney when he says that. And then he quoted the following. You can change human nature. No man who has felt in him the spirit of Christ, even for half a minute, can deny this truth. You do change human nature, your own human nature, if you surrender it to Christ. Human nature has been changed in the past. Human nature must be changed on an enormous scale in the future. And this is my gospel. Repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh the baptism of fire in the Holy Ghost, even the Comforter, 
which showeth all things and teacheth the peaceable things of the kingdom. And so let me just share, I've probably mentioned this before, but when my children were being baptized and confirmed at age eight, I wanted to make sure that they understood that when their dad and other holders of the Melchizedek priesthood would place their hands on their heads to confirm the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and to give them the gift of the Holy Ghost, I wanted them to be paying attention to the significance of the words that are said in that ordinance, where the holder of the Melchizedek priesthood that is conferring this ordinance upon the newly baptized member says, I say unto you, receive the Holy Ghost. And I wanted my children to understand that that gave them access to the gift of the Holy Ghost, but it did not mean that they were in that moment qualified for the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost, that they were now entitled through this sacred ordinance to the presence of the Holy Ghost, and they were given access to the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, which is sanctification, if they met the conditions of that covenant. Every covenant has conditions, right? So even as we go to the temple and, and we experience the covenants they're given in those ordinances, in those sacred ordinances, there are always phrases like, if you're true and faithful, or if you complete this path, or whatever. Anyway, whatever those words are that talk about the conditions of, of the blessings of the covenant that come because of our obedience. And that is exactly the same thing that happens when we are confirmed members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are given this opportunity to have the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, but that will not come to us without our meeting the conditions because the Spirit will not come to an unclean tabernacle. So if we, and you know, many of us who were baptized and confirmed at eight hadn't even experienced the big temptations yet. So you know, for us to, to think that we were ready to be sanctified on the spot, you know, is an immature and not fully, you know, complete understanding. What we need to understand and teach our children at any age who are coming into the church through the waters of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost as bestowed in that confirmation ordinance, recognizing that that gift, it gives us access, but then we must pursue a path of obedience, that boringly consistent obedience that qualifies us for the presence of the Spirit continually in our lives. And once we have demonstrated sufficiently that we will obey at all costs, at all hazards, as the prophet Joseph said, then comes that constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, which enlivens our mind, changes our bodies into a body that, in which the Spirit has reversed the effects of the fall, the effects of mortality in us. Anyway, powerful blessings. We can't list them all here. Bruce R. McConkie said this, baptism in water and of the Spirit is preceded by repentance. The actual cleansing of the soul comes when the Holy Ghost is received. That's what I've just been talking about. The actual cleansing of the soul comes when the Holy Ghost is received. The Holy Ghost is a sanctifier whose divine commission is to burn dross and evil out of a human soul as though by fire, thus giving rise to the expression, baptism of fire, which is the baptism of the Spirit. Forgiveness is assured when the contrite soul receives the Holy Spirit because the Spirit will not dwell in an unclean tabernacle. That's what we've just been talking about. McConkie also said, how can men become clean and pure or holy, which is what we're talking about, if Christ will come to the holy 
How can men become clean and pure and thus holy? Going on, Elder McConkie says, How can they be sanctified? What power can burn dross and evil out of a human soul as though by fire? To be saved, men must be born again. They must be sanctified by the Spirit. They must receive the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. They must become clean and spotless by obedience to law. The Holy Ghost is a sanctifier. No man can be saved unless he receives the gift of the Holy Ghost. Some scriptures, and of course there are so many scriptures that talk about this, but we kind of have to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear as we read. Maybe you remember from the Doctrine and Covenants that many times in the DNC, the saints are admonished to sanctify themselves. So this is a very specific mandate that the Lord gives to his people to qualify for this baptism of fire by the Holy Ghost, that we may be sanctified and purified and become holy. Anyway, just to mention a few, DNC 20, verse 41 says, and to confirm those who are baptized into the church by the laying out of hands for the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, according to the scriptures. DNC 19, verse 31, and of tenets thou shalt not talk, but thou shalt declare repentance and faith on the Savior and remission of sins by baptism and by fire, yea, even the Holy Ghost. Alma 13, 11, and 12. Therefore they were called after this holy order and were sanctified, and their garments were washed white through the blood of the Lamb. See, they were made clean through the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost. Going on, now they, after being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, having their garments made white, being pure and spotless before God, could not look upon sin save it were with abhorrence. And there were many, exceedingly great many, who were made pure, and entered into the rest of the Lord their God. 2 Nephi 31, 13, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if he shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that ye are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the water according to his word, Behold, then shall ye receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. So, of course, we know that 2 Nephi 31 is the place where we go to find a succinct synopsis of the doctrine of Christ. It also appears in chapter 32, and I actually love the words of chapter 32 in 2 Nephi also. But here it is, the doctrine of Christ, which is faith, repentance, baptism, the baptism of water, and then baptism of fire through the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost, which comes when the conditions of obedience have been met. That boring consistency where we serve the Lord no matter what, and we are not pulled off the path by the philosophies of men or the sophistries of Satan, that we stay firm in our obedience. We don't bicker about the commandments. We don't argue with God about the terms by which we can be saved. We are willing to embrace them with gratitude and that urgency of desire to please him and to become his people. 3 Nephi 27, now this is the commandment, repent all ye ends of the earth and come unto me and be baptized in my name that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. We could go on forever, but we're going to stop there in terms of the scriptures that talk about some of the many scriptures that talk about being born again by the power of the Holy Ghost being sanctified or made pure and holy. This is our goal. If we want to be holy, we need to be on the path of sanctification. We've been talking about that for a long time now. Let's go on. We're going to talk about wisdom very briefly, but 
in a beautiful summary given in Alma 37, Alma speaking to his son, Coriandon, who has great need to repent because he was hanging around the harlot Isabel and involved with her in wickedness. And Alma gives a great, a great testimony of the plan to Coriantin, testimony of Christ anyway. At one point, he makes this wonderful summary about wisdom. All remember, my son, and learn wisdom in thy youth. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again. When I was quite young, we would travel across the country. <laughs> we lived in Indiana, and we would drive across the country in our station wagon. Well, first an, an old Buick sedan, and then later on a station wagon, we would go and visit our Mexican cousins in Provo, and then our French cousins in California. And we did that almost every summer. So we were on those long road trips almost every summer. My parents were university professors, so they had the summers off, and we would take these long trips. And my parents would often talk about the gospel and teach stories and you know, share Bible stories and Book of Mormon stories. Anyway, we talked a lot about the gospel in the car from time to time. So I remember my dad, particularly with his, his beautiful voice that was tinged with a beautiful Spanish accent, but perfect English. I remember him talking about Solomon, and my dad had read so much history, of course, the, the scriptural history, but also other materials. So he had a great knowledge of of some of the peripheral history around these stories as well. And anyway, he would talk of the glory of Solomon's kingdom and how many other rulers would come to, to stand in wonder of Solomon's great wise judgments of his people as he as he ruled over those people and solved disputes. And of course, you know the story of the two women who come with the one surviving child, the other having been smothered during the night, and both claiming to be the mothers of this child and how Solomon says split the child in half and the true mother says, no, she can keep the child. So Solomon knows that that is, in fact, the true mother. Anyway, many stories of Solomon's wisdom in his holding court over his people were shared by my father. And he developed this great desire to have wisdom. Like, I really thought that was so, so admirable and so enviable to be able to understand the truth of things and how to come to the truth of things. I was just in awe of, of the ability to see so clearly and to come to a place where the truth could be revealed and to understand how that was to be done. So anyway, as these stories were told and repeated through my youth, I really had this desire to be wise. And then when I was, I don't know, when I first read the Book of Mormon, it was not as young as our kids read it these days. It wasn't, I don't know, just didn't do that. But when I started reading the scriptures on my own, at about age 16, you know, I, I read the DNC first and then the Book of Mormon, and I came to this verse in Alma 37. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks to hear Alma say to his son, learn wisdom in thy youth, yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. I mean, that just hit me like a hammer. It's like, is it that simple? Is it that simple? This great gift of wisdom comes from being obedient to the commandments? I'm in. Like, I'm in. Did that make me a perfect person? No. Did I make mistakes? Sure. But I really had a desire to continue to be oriented towards obedience and not be rebellious because I, I could see that this great gift that I had been made aware of in my early youth, this gift of wisdom, was mine for the having. 
that God would give it to me if I were obedient to his commandments. I was already on that path of not being rebellious. And again, not saying I was perfect, but I was not rebellious. And as I continued on that path, to have that assurance that that was the path toward wisdom just filled me with gratitude, filled me with excitement that this incredible gift of wisdom could be mine in this simple way, just by choosing to be obedient to God's commandments. Okay, there's my pitch on wisdom. We can all be wise if we are obedient. I have to quit being rebellious. We have to give up our stubbornness, our stiff-neckedness, our pride. We're going to talk about that in a moment here. But we, we can all be wise. How exciting is that? So there it is. We talked about the shepherds being humble, and we're coming back to that. We're going to end with that. We talked about the holiness that can come through the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost and being born again of fire, of the Spirit, and becoming purified, being sanctified, and thus being qualified for the presence of God, and then being wise. So simple to be wise, brothers and sisters. It is so simple. Let us root out any rebellion in our hearts. Let us teach our children to give it up in their youth, to learn in their youth, to be obedient, to acknowledge God's supremacy, his superiority, his greatness and goodness, and to humble ourselves before it. And then here we come back to humble. A lot of these are overlapping, right? So talking about more than one thing sometimes, but okay, humility. For this, I couldn't think of a better way to talk about this than going back to Ezra Taft Benson's landmark speech called Beware of Pride, read in General Conference that was attended by President Benson, where he was getting old and not in his good health. So he, even though he was there in attendance in the April 1989 conference, he asked Gordon B. Hinckley, one of his counselors, to read the talk. So if you go back and look on YouTube or whatever, and honestly, I invite all of us to go back and review this speech. And not just once, brothers and sisters, but this could be reviewed regularly by us. There are so many great messages from our prophets. This is one of the great messages of our prophets. At the time then, President Benson, read by President Gordon B. Hinckley of the First Presidency. I'm just going to read parts of this speech, and we'll talk about it a little bit. As concerns the cautions against pride and the invitation to become a humble people. And I'm picking and choosing some selections, but let's get into it. The Doctrine and Covenants tells us that the Book of Mormon is the record of a fallen people. Why did they fall? This is one of the major messages of the Book of Mormon. Mormon gives the answer in the closing chapters of the book in these words Behold, the pride of this nation, or the people of the Nephites, have proven their destruction. And then, lest we miss that momentous Book of Mormon message from that fallen people, the Lord warns us in the Doctrine and Covenants, beware of pride, lest ye become as the Nephites of old. Now, many of us, having grown up in the church study of the Book of Mormon, are very aware of that pride cycle. But when the Nephites became prosperous, when the Lord blessed them because they were being obedient and were becoming a righteous people, they prospered, and that prosperity led them to pride. They could have resisted, they could have remained humble, but they often turned proud, and that pride was a sign of their downfall, and eventually it destroyed the entire nation. Now, look around, brothers and sisters. Look at our nation today and many nations of the world. Are we not caught up in pride where we vaunt ourselves above God? 
where we do not acknowledge his supremacy, his superiority, his perfect intelligence. We don't hear much about that these days. We see the vaunting of the self. We see the worship of the self. We see the elevation of the self, that expressive individualism that we talked about back with Amos and Obadiah that is contrary to the doctrine of Christ, where we diminish God and elevate ourselves above him as if we know as much or more than the Almighty, as if we know more than the Alpha and Omega. Beware lest we become like the Nephites of old. Going on in this speech a little bit later, in the pre-mortal council, it was pride that felled Lucifer, a son of the morning. At the end of this world, when God cleanses the earth by fire, the proud will be burned as stubble, and the meek shall inherit the earth. And those words are used. Third Nephi 12, Third Nephi 25, DNC 29, Joseph Smith History 1, verse 37, Malachi, verse, anyway, it's again and again in Scripture that when Christ comes in his glory, it is the proud who will be burned as stubble, and the meek who will inherit the earth. So many warnings, right? Going back to the speech, most of us think of pride as self-centeredness, conceit, boastfulness, arrogance, or haughtiness. All of these are elements of the sin, but the heart or core is still missing. The central feature of pride is enmity. Enmity toward God and enmity toward our fellow men. Enmity means hatred toward, hostility to, or a state of opposition. It is the power by which Satan wishes to reign over us. Pride is essentially competitive in nature. We pit our will against God's. And again, think of how often this happens. Even amongst church members, maybe in some respects, especially amongst church members, where we think we know better than God. Think of so many people who are expecting that the church will change policy to conform with their limited understanding of marriage or of eternal exaltation that comes through and is available only to those married legally and lawfully in the sight of God and men between a man and a woman, only a man and a woman. And yet there are so many right now who want to push against that. There are so many who want to suppose that God can make a mistake and put a female spirit in a male body or a male body or a male spirit in a female. Ridiculous. Ridiculous to think that they know things about God that make God, you know, faulty or, or fallible. Absurd. And yet we live in a world where these conversations happen, where people vaunt themselves and their limited understanding, their limited intelligence against God. That is that enmity that President Benson was warning against, this enmity toward God and toward our fellow men. Again, enmity means hatred toward, hostility to, or a state of opposition. So much opposition in some of our conversations. People telling us that God didn't mean this, he meant this, or that we have the right to interpret his commandments and do them in our own way, and to live the gospel in our own style that feels good to us. I mean, again, absurd and ridiculous. There's an enmity there, an opposition to truth, an opposition to the supremacy of God. Going back to the speech, we pit our will against God's. When we direct our pride toward God, it is in the spirit of my will and not thine be done. Of course, that's the exact reverse of the example set by Jesus Christ. I want it my way, not the Lord's way. 
As Paul said, they seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Our will in competition to God's will allows desires, appetites, and passions to go unbridled. And that's the point. This is serving the natural man when we vaunt our will against God's. Oh, no, no, I want to do it my way. It feels good to me. It's my truth. It's my way. It's my style. Instead of God's way and following the Lord in his submission to God's perfect will. Going on in the speech, the proud cannot accept the authority of God giving direction to their lives. They pit their perceptions of truth against God's great knowledge. Their abilities versus God's priesthood power. Their accomplishments against his mighty works. Again, notice the hierarchy here. So this this disastrous sin of pride is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about people denying the supremacy of God and, and rejecting the hierarchy of a supreme being and of us in a fallen world needing to approach him in the way that he has designated, through covenant and through obedience to his commandments. But that lack of humility is everywhere in our world. We, we vaunt ourselves against God all over this society. We think we control the planet. We think we control the climate. We think we control the affairs of of nations. And instead of humbling ourselves and realizing that the whole world is in his hands and that we can receive blessings that we desire only through obedience to God, doing things in his way, not in our own. If, If only we would understand that, then the blessings that we desire would come instead of thinking, no, we're in charge of all of it. And forget God, which is so clearly a big part of our of our world today. Okay, going on. Let's see where I am in the speech here. Our enmity towards God takes on many labels, such as rebellion, hard-heartedness, stiff-neckedness, unrepentant, puffed up, easily offended. There's a big one. There are a lot of people who leave the church because they are offended. And anyway, I've quoted this before, but a friend of mine in Vegas told me that her sister had finally, finally stopped being offended by things that happened in the church and put kind of her summary this way. She said, you know, I finally realized if you're not offended two or three times a week, you're hardly even active. And I thought, that's a pretty good summary. If we're not offended that frequently, we're hardly even being involved in church at the level we should be. So anyway, that's one of the lists here that President Benson wars against, being rebellious, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, unrepentant, puffed up, easily offended, and sign seekers. And there are those who maybe they don't think they're seeking a sign, but they are. They want God to prove to them that they should be obedient rather than moving forward in faith, choosing to believe, and then having signs follow our belief as God gives us a witness after the trial of our faith. Anyway, going on, the proud wish God would agree with them. They aren't interested in changing their opinions to agree with God's. Another major portion of this very prevalent sin of pride is enmity toward our fellow men. We are tempted daily to elevate ourselves above others and diminish them. Now, I want you to think about family relationships as we read this next part. Relationships between parents and children, as well as the relationships and the interaction between our children, between siblings. So think about this. Enmity toward our fellow men, we are tempted daily to elevate ourselves above others and diminish them. The proud make every man their adversary by pitting their intellects, opinions, works, wealth, 
talents, or any other worldly measuring device against others. In the words of C.S. Lewis, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. So again, think about it. Do we have that kind of competitive feeling in our marriages where we have to be right and our partner has to be wrong, where we need to elevate ourselves? I've heard too many people talk about how you know they compare anything between them to try to gain some sort of advantage or see themselves as having more of something even than their spouse. Or could it be between parents and children or between the children themselves? Think how often we see our children compete against each other and try to say that one is better than the other or one has something better or is smarter or more talented or more athletic or more of whatever. Like, how sad is that? And should we allow it to continue? Absolutely not. We need to teach our children as they are growing up to not compete one against the other in ways that that elevate themselves at the expense of somebody else. Honestly, I think my grandkids are great. So forgive me. I'm not saying we're perfect in our family. I'm just so pleased to see my children trying to teach their children good principles. And this is something that I've seen, especially one son talks about this quite a bit because he has some really athletic children and, and he really has taught them to cheer for each other, to celebrate each other's accomplishments, not to be in this constant competition where if one child succeeds at something, they have to be envious or they have to diminish that accomplishment in order to feel good about themselves, but to be the biggest fan of their brothers and sisters. And to see that acted out is so beautiful. To see one of them on a team or in whatever you know situation, a play or, or any kind of event, to see their, their siblings cheer for them and to be equally full of joy when there is success on the part of any one of their siblings or family members is such a beautiful thing. We can teach our children to do this. We don't have to allow them to see each other in this competitive light where, you know, if somebody does something great, they have to diminish it or say, that wasn't that big a deal, or I did something just as good or whatever. No, let's, let's talk to them about that and realize, no, that's enmity. And that is because of pride. That comparison is, is the beginning of an end. We need not to worry about our position relative to other people and having to put people down to feel elevated. And again, we see this happen in marriage, sadly, as often as anywhere else, it seems. And certainly we see it in our children against each other. Let us not do that. Sadly, we even see some parents trying to compete with their children. That's really unhealthy. But we can examine ourselves and see if those kinds of comparisons exist. And if they do, we need to cast them out and repent and humble ourselves so that we can not have that basic enmity that President Benson warns against. Going on, skipping around a little bit in this speech, the scriptures abound with evidence of the severe consequences of the sin of pride to individuals, groups, cities, and nations. Pride goeth before destruction. It destroyed the Nephite nation and the city of Sodom. It was through pride that Christ was crucified. The Pharisees were wroth because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, which was a threat to their position, so they plotted his death. Later, President Benson writes, The proud stand more in fear of men's judgment than of God's judgment. This is another element of pride that we don't always automatically consider. What will men think of me weighs heavier than what will God think of me? And later in the speech, pride is a sin that can readily be seen in others, but is rarely admitted in ourselves. 
Most of us consider pride to be a sin of those on the top, such as the rich and the learned, looking down at the rest of us. There is, however, a far more common ailment among us, and that is pride from the bottom looking up. It is manifest in so many ways, such as fault-finding. Look at these things that are considered part of pride that the prophet is warning us against. Fault-finding, gossiping, backbiting, murmuring, living beyond our means, envying, coveting, withholding gratitude and praise that might lift another. That's a good one, isn't it? All of these, all of these can creep into our lives, but withholding gratitude and praise that might lift another is pride and being unforgiving and jealous. I think that's another interesting one. To be unforgiving is pride. He talks about that a little bit later, I think. But anyway, disobedience is essentially a prideful power struggle against someone in authority over us. It can be a parent, a priesthood leader, a teacher, or ultimately God. A proud person hates the fact that someone is above him. He thinks that that lowers his position. And again, this really ties into what we keep talking about, going back to liberation theology, which wants to completely eliminate any hierarchy and wants to see any hierarchy as oppressive. So even God is seen as oppressive if we, if we say that he is superior to us in liberation theology, which has swept our society. And in Savior theology, or the doctrine of Christ, there is a complete acknowledgement of God's superiority and his power and position above us. But here, pride, tied in so much to liberation theology, hates the fact that any being is above us. If we can't acknowledge the supremacy of God, this is this, no wonder pride destroys individuals, societies, and nations because we can't even acknowledge the reality of God's supremacy. That does not lower our position. That actually gives us a chance to be elevated, to become like him if we follow in his covenant path. Okay, continuing with the speech, selfishness is one of the more common faces of pride. And you remember that President Kimball, years before, warned that selfishness was at the root of every divorce. Now, it's not just marriage that selfishness can ruin, but that is certainly something that we see again and again as we do marriage work, that selfishness is one of the more common faces of pride. Continuing, how everything affects me is the center of all that matters. Self-conceit, self-pity, worldly self-fulfillment, self-gratification, and self-seeking. Pride results in secret combinations which are built up to get power, gain, and glory of the world. That's a fascinating one, that pride results in secret combinations. It's all about gaining power, money, riches, and glory. It's prophesied that we're going to have Gideon robbers amongst us in the last days. Surely that is already the case. I think we can see this grasping effort in many organizations to gain power, riches, and glory. And this is all about pride. Continuing with President Benson's speech, this fruit of the sin of pride Namely, secret combinations brought down both the Jaredite and the Nephite civilizations and has been and will yet be the cause of the fall of many nations. Another face of pride is contention, arguments, 
fights, unrighteous dominion, generation gaps, divorces, spouse abuse, riots, and disturbances all follow into this category of pride. That's a sweeping statement. All contention comes from pride. Contention in our families drives the Spirit of the Lord away. It also drives many of our family members away. Contention ranges from a hostile spoken word to worldwide conflicts. The scriptures tell us that only by pride cometh contention. The scriptures testify that the proud are easily offended and hold grudges. They withhold forgiveness to keep another in their debt and to justify their injured feelings. Now, we've talked about forgiveness a few times, mostly last year with the Doctrine and Covenants, I guess a couple of years ago now. But remember that God wants us not to be victimized. So he does not want us caught in that pattern of the battered wife who, quote unquote, forgives just to be injured again or abused again, and then again, quote unquote, forgives, but continues in that cycle of abuse as the victim. So God wants us to be safe. He wants us to be non-victim Christians, not dishing it out, but not chronically taking it. So that's a big subject that we've talked about in the past and we'll probably talk about again. So that is not what's being spoken of here, that we forgive in a way that allows the, the victimization to continue. That's not what God wants for us, but he does want forgiveness. And in order to safely and healthily forgive, we must first be safe. So we take steps to create safety of our own volition because we are agents who are admonished to act and not to be acted upon. That's from 2 Nephi 2, if you remember Lehi's great speech to his grandchildren before his death. So we must act and not be acted upon. We need to take steps to become safe and to be non-victim Christians, and then forgiveness can follow easily. And if we are choosing not to forgive, even after we are safe, then there's an element of pride there that desires to keep somebody in our debt or to have us exert power over them because we can say that they hurt us and we're not going to forgive them, or that might justify our continued injured feelings and, and uh, not allow us to move forward in healthy healing through the atonement of Christ, because the atonement can also help us heal from injury that has been inflicted upon us. And if we aren't moving forward in that way, there's an element of pride. I think that's a, a fascinating application and absolutely accurate. Back to the speech. The proud do not receive counsel or correction easily. Talked about this before, that idea of being easy to be entreated. And how, especially in our family lives, especially in our marriages, and as parents and as children, we need to be easy to be entreated. So that if somebody comes to us with a concern or problem or their own injured feelings, that we are soft-hearted sufficiently and humble enough to hear what they are saying and to give understanding and credence to their hurt or their concerns and to consider them prayerfully and see what we can do to make the situation better, to not be so proud that we can't take feedback, that we immediately go to defensiveness and we will not listen to things that we may be doing that are injurious or hurtful or offensive to others. So that's all pride. Okay, back to that sentence. Do not receive counselor correction easily. Defensiveness is used by them to justify and rationalize their frailties and failures. Pride is a damning sin in the true sense of that word. It limits or stops progression. The proud are not easily taught. They won't change their minds to accept truths because to do so implies they have been wrong. 
Pride adversely affects all our relationships, our relationship with God and his servants, between husband and wife, parent and child, employer and employee, teacher and student, and all mankind. Our degree of pride determines how we treat our God and our brothers and sisters. Later, pride is the universal sin. I'll never forget that. Ever since I heard this speech, I remember that statement that pride is the universal sin. In other words, we all need to look in the mirror and petition with the Lord and say, what lack I yet in this arena? How do I still have remnants of pride that I can purge from my life, that I can purge from my heart and mind to become more wholly humble, more completely humble and willing to change, willing to be improved and refined through repentance and through changing my life. Pride is the universal sin, the great vice. Yes, pride is the universal sin, the great vice. That is repeated in the speech. The antidote for pride is humility, meekness, submissiveness. It is the broken heart and contrite spirit. God will have a humble people. Either we can choose to be humble or we can be compelled to be humble. Let us choose to be humble. I know I read a lot of that, but I skipped a lot too. So I would encourage all of you to go back and review that wonderful, wonderful, powerful warning voice read by Gordon B. Hinckley, the words of our prophet at the time, President Ezra Taft Benson, to beware of pride. It is worth reviewing and examining ourselves with real meekness and real willingness to be taught and improved. There are so many areas there that might apply to us because we are human and we can do better. If we are going to choose glory, if we're going to become a Zion people, we must be humble. God will have a humble people. If we are not humble, we will not be one of those people. We will not be allowed to be a part of Zion. But we can. We can humble ourselves. Now, a little parenting note here that I think is really important to consider also. And I'm quoting right now a man named Leonard Sachs from a book called The Collapse of Parenting. It's, it's a good book with lots of interesting data. It's several years old now, but really still applicable, I would say, in many ways. Leonard Sachs said, over the past four decades, there has been a massive transfer of authority from parents to kids. Now, we're pretty aware of that, right? I've talked about this. I mentioned this in the Daniel podcast where I talked about permissive parenting. But remember that this transfer is, is evident everywhere. We see it in even what we consider the safe, quote unquote, they're not really safe, but safe family sitcoms that started many years ago, decades ago now, that showed the kids solving all the problems and the parents were also often depicted as fools or, or foolish or petty in small ways, whatever, that children had to rise to the occasion and solve the problems and rescue things and so on. So even in that subtle way, there was a transfer of authority and power from the parent to the kids. The parents were inept or problematic in some way, and the children were superior. So we saw that real shift. Now, what is the point here, and how does this connect to humility? Well, let's make that point in a minute. But another statement by Leonard Sachs, Along with that, in many families, what kids think and what kids like and what kids want now matters as much or more than what their parents think and like and want. Let the kids decide. And that has become the condition of many families where parents have transferred that power, like kind of relinquished their power to ask the kids what they want. And, you know, I just read something again the other day 
about gentle parenting, which has become this popular philosophy, where again, parents just let kids make the decisions and they don't really impose their experience or we would hope more mature understanding of things. And they don't use any of that and they just instead abandon or abdicate their parental authority and give it to the children and let the children decide everything for themselves, decide how to raise themselves, basically. And children don't know how to raise themselves. So going on, one more statement by Leonard Sachs. In one study, the attitude of American teenagers toward their parents was described as ingratitude seasoned with contempt. Think of that. That teenagers are expressing this attitude toward their parents of ingratitude seasoned with contempt. So this leads us to a quote by Billy Graham, who said, a child who is allowed to be disrespectful to his parents will not have true respect for anyone. Okay, there's the tie-in. There's the tie-in. If we want our children to have a chance for salvation and even exaltation through covenant and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they need to start with respect toward their parents. How can they respect a heavenly parent if they don't respect their earthly parents? Now, let's suppose that the parent is trying to live in a way that is worthy of respect, because that, of course, is another variable. And parents who are abusive or neglectful or petty or childish themselves, you know, it's pretty tough to expect a child to respect that. Even then, it's not bad to teach children to have a general policy of respect towards adults who have been around the block a lot more times than they have. Nevertheless, let's just assume for the point of this discussion that the parents are trying to be good parents, that they are not neglectful, they are not abusive, that they have the best interests of their children at heart, and they are trying to raise their children in a good way. But let's understand that the world's way is not okay. Permissiveness is a disaster because it allows that reversal of authority or that, that transfer of authority from the parent to the child. That's what permissiveness does. Again, if you need a review about that, please go back to the Follow Him episode of Daniel from the Old Testament where I talk in the second half about permissive parenting and the damage that that has done to our society and to our children, but even to our society at large. And certainly it happens in the church that we have sometimes also reversed that and allowed children to behave in disrespectful ways that do not help them. And I've mentioned this before, but sometimes we have to be really cautious that as we try to encourage our youth that we don't just give these universal accolades and tell them, I mean, kind of like a participation trophy, right? <laughs> when we say that our youth are all so wonderful or our youth are all so spiritual, and we make these blanket pronouncements sometimes in church. And that's not really helpful. It is really like the participation trophy that, you know, you're all wonderful, whether you did anything wonderful or not. And that is the opposite of helping them generate humility. And it absolutely encourages pride. That competitiveness, that they're all wonderful, that they're even smarter than we are as parents or adults or whatever. Again, there's a sweet spot in there. I'm not suggesting that we diminish our children or that we are demeaning or hurtful in the way we talk about them. We need to be, of course, loving and encouraging and so on, but there need to be conditions. There need to be requirements of respect, not just toward their parents, but toward adults in general. Again, we want to teach our children wisdom and to be able to tell the difference between a parent or an adult that is on their side and one who isn't, but 
teaching that wisdom does not change the fact that children need to have respect. Again, back to the Billy Graham statement, a child who is allowed to be disrespectful to his parents will not have true respect for anyone. Can we see how critical that is? That if we want our children to have respect for deity, if we want them to acknowledge the supremacy of God, if we want them to be aware of the truth of a spiritual hierarchy where God is at the top and we are fallen, we are at the bottom in terms of of that fallen race that came as an incident to the fall, which was necessary for us, that we all voted in favor of so that we could come and receive a body and then through covenant come back into God's presence with that sanctified body that allows us to become like our Father in heaven and to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But that requires an acknowledgement of the hierarchy that is now being dismissed everywhere as oppressive and attacked on every side and elevating the self and diminishing the power of God. We have to fight back against that if we want our children to have a chance to be saved. If our children are disrespectful, we need to address it. And we can. We can become authoritative parents. We can require that if our children are disrespectful, that there are consequences. And those consequences need to be sufficient enough to motivate change. Not physically harsh, not verbally harsh or emotionally harsh. This is not about injuring our children. This is about motivating them. But we've talked about this before, that all human behavior is motivated by costs and payoffs. If our children are getting payoffs from being disrespectful, meaning that they sort of get away with it and they still are able to access the resources or the opportunities and the privileges of being in our families, they're not going to change. But if it starts to cost them more than it pays them off, if they lose privileges, if they lose access to technology, if they lose access to their friends, if we impose consequences, if they are disrespectful and they get tired of it after a while, they will change. But we have to be more stubborn than the kid. Brothers and sisters, let me repeat that. We must be more stubborn than our children. I could go on this for a long time. I'm going to stop here and we (laughs) revisit this topic, I'm sure. Brothers and sisters, If we are to become humble, holy, and wise, we have to be different from the rest of the world. We cannot follow the trends of society, and certainly not the parental trends of society, which are all toward permissiveness and this gentle parenting. I'm not saying we shouldn't be gentle. I'm saying that that is being used as a very attractive phrase to describe permissiveness, which is a disaster. It's a disaster. And as one of our apostles, Elder Neil Maxwell, warned, that permissiveness at the end of its journey will cause humanity to stare in mute disbelief at its awful consequences. Well, we are there. We are destroying the opportunity of our children when we allow them to be disrespectful or allow them to drive the bus, so to speak, or we hand over the authority to them at our own cost. And it is our own abdication of our parental stewardship. We must not do it. Okay, we've gone a long time today, and I'm sorry that this was kind of a long episode, but I hope that there are some principles here that will make sense as we and and our children, hopefully, move toward choosing glory, move more confidently toward choosing glory and building Zion, we can do it. If you're interested, you can help support this podcast by subscribing on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash choosing glory, or 
by purchasing a copy of my book, Choosing Glory, on my website, lily, L-I-L-I, andersonson.com. Thank you for all those who are already helping with that support, and thanks for listening. Also, of course, as ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <laughs>